0: What does it really mean to receive communion? And honestly, is anyone truly worthy to receive the same God whom the angels adore in awe and trembling? How can we have a renaissance of our sacramental imagination? Join us today as we discuss these questions and more with His Excellency Salvatore Cordiglione, Archbishop of San Francisco. I'm Father Dave Pavonkin, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka. I'm president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we're talking today about a Eucharistic revival. I'm joined by our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, a professor here of Systematic Theology at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. We are pleased to welcome our special guest, His Excellency, Salvatore Corleone, and he is the Archbishop of San Francisco since 2012, and on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, and like St. Francis, throughout his ministry, he has been a voice in, to society's most vulnerable and the members of the church in the most in need, and also been a voice for the poor and the unborn. Last year, he issued, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, a pastoral letter, letter on the human dignity of the unborn, Holy Communion, and Catholics in the public life, which is the basis of our conversation today. Welcome, Archbishop. Thank it's just you. a great blessing to have you with us. Uh, maybe just for a moment, how did you get to be Archbishop? How your story of faith and formation <laughs> and vocation? Oh, that's a long story. Do we have <laughs> enough time? Uh-huh. You tell us. No, it's just such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It pleasure' mine.
1: Well, I grew up in a, a typical working class family. I was born and raised in San Diego. My father was a commercial fisherman. There was a, the fishing industry was there at the time. My grandfather was the immigrant. I actually immigrated first to San Francisco where my father was born. Um, a hundred years before I became the Archbishop. That's great, (laughs) isn't that something? God's, yes, ironic design. But he moved down to San Diego uh, to, he needed a warmer, dry climate where he Mm. could keep fishing. So I grew up there and uh, I was inspired by kind of the maritime mm, imagination and uh, lots of Navy there too. And I always knew I wanted to give my life to serving a higher cause or some kind of service my country, or, or for to better the world. Um, so I was kind of aspiring to something like that, a service to my country, perhaps in the military, or something like that. But uh, you know, I got more spiritually serious. I, my faith was always important to me, but I got more serious about it toward the high school, my first year of college. So I began thinking about it. The thought f- occurred to me, and I got up the, the courage to speak to the young priest of my parish. It was was an inspiration to me, yeah, yeah. and uh, he sent me on a discernment weekend at our local seminary there, and uh, so getting to know other young men thinking about the call, getting to know the seminarians and what the life was like, um, the you know that you know the hound of heaven yeah, that nagging wouldn't course, go away. So I knew I had to go into the seminary to test the call. So I, after you know some time, I discerned this is what God was calling me to, and. Since I was ordained, I've had a variety of experiences in my priesthood. I was an associate pastor right off the bat in a parish I knew quite well. It was neighboring the one I grew up in, and we sometimes went to church there. Mm -hmm. And it was a very good first assignment for me. I had a good pastor. It was a very friendly community, uh, active parish. Then I was sent to study canon law. I did four years of uh, uh, canon law studies, got a doctorate there uh, in Rome. I returned to two years of diocesan work, tribunal assistant to the bishop, and uh, then I was a pastor for four years at a parish on the Mexican border okay. out in the Imperial Valley, which is kind of toward Arizona, so it's a desert area that's now now agricultural. And uh, then I got called uh, to Rome to work at the Apostolic Signatura, one of the church's canonical courts for seven years, and then I became the auxiliary bishop of San Diego. And this is where we get to the closer (laughs) part of the story of how I ended up in San Francisco. I first went to Oakland. Um, That was Archbishop Vigneron before me, was sent to Detroit, back home to Detroit. So I got called to Oakland and I was there for three years and uh, Archbishop Niederauer had reached the retirement age. Then I got the phone call from the nuncio informing me that the
0: Holy Father had appointed me to San Francisco. Quite the story, yeah. <laughs> All of that, you were ordained when you were 12, it sounds like. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> well, I, w- maybe just in, make that connection to your coat of arms, which kind of tells your story, doesn't it? Yes, with, with that's the, the idea of the coat of arms. Yeah. It identifies the individual. So the crab on the coat of
1: arms represents the, the family trade, the fishermen, mm-hmm. and my grandfather, as I mentioned, when he first went to San Francisco, he did, was, he did fish for crab. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a big, big industry there. Then uh, in San Diego, fish for lobster and tuna. But it's, so it's the, the fishing trade and uh, then the blue background for the ocean and the wavy line. Or to give the, the effect of the ocean, right. and then above it's the um, uh, the rampant, semi-rampant lion holding the heart for my last name, Lionheart Cortileone. Beautiful,
2: oh, Beautiful. Yeah, Fishers of Men. Yeah, my yes. fa- yeah, my
0: father was a physician, and they say that you know, that we have a similar trade that he healed the body and I heal the soul. Yeah. And you're well, fishermen. I'm
1: I'm fond of saying I'm the only grandson carrying on the family trade. There you go. <laughs> and as it turns out, the crab also you know is the month represents the month of July um, in. The, um, the astrological, the, the signs. Mm. Um, and uh, so that's the month I was ordained uh, a priest. It's the month I was named a bishop. And uh, it turns out to be the month that I was also named an archbishop.
0: I
3: know. Yeah. Yeah, the, the blue uh, in the coat of arms, I think, would be surely suggestive of Mary. And I suspect you have a deep devotion. Uh, to her, you quote her very tellingly uh, yes. in that lovely letter you wrote.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh, certainly, certainly, that was drilled yeah. into us growing up.
3: Yeah. Yes.
0: Now you've spent a lot of time recently in just inviting your church and the larger church to focus on the Eucharistic uh, element and the Jesus is present. Why now? Is there something now that's going on that you think that the Lord is calling you to that, or calling us as a church to that? I've noticed that practically my whole priesthood, that
1: um, many of our people are moving away from a sense of, of what the Eucharist really is, who the Eucharist really is, mm-hmm. and what it means to receive the Eucharist. And uh, so I thought with everything going on in our society, and there for a long time we've been going through this debate about, um, you know, people in public life who openly dissent from church teaching, especially on the the critical life issues Mm -hmm. and and, the idea of being properly disposed to receive the Holy Eucharist. So it's actually been going on for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It seems to keep intensifying. So I thought um, I needed to do something more more emphatic in, in teaching about it. And it's basically clarifying what. The Church has always believed about yeah. this. Right, right.
3: Yeah, it's, it's not as if you've been talking about a side chapel uh, <laughs> in the cathedral. I mean, this is not uh, a dispensable fixture. The Eucharist is right at the center of things. So it seems almost natural that you would gravitate to a defense of the real presence. But why do you suppose people have lost uh, their lively sense that this is really God? Because we
1: don't worship in accordance with that. You know the church has always understood that we teach more powerfully through symbols than words. We need words too, mm-hmm. but and there's another way we teach through symbols that it hits us in a different way. And I think our the way we worship hasn't really adequately reflected yeah. uh, who the Eucharist really is and the sacredness of that. And uh, I think and it's kind of is in line with what I observe happening in our society where. It basically comes down to a loss of the sense of the sacred, but that's because of a, yeah. a loss of a sacramental sensitivity. Okay, again, this is the power of symbol to teach, that uh, we've I, when our society was more imbued with the Christian ethos, we had more of a sense of that, of the power of the physical to reveal and make present something greater beyond it. So I've often given the example of the flag. We still have this with regard to the flag, Right? Um, less maybe than we used yeah, to, right, but, right. but, you know, soldiers still stand at attention and salute. Right, yeah. Why do they do that if it's only a colorful piece of cloth, Right. you yeah. know? And the, I once heard on the, the radio story about the, the flag sergeant uh, who would carry the flag marching into battle and risking his life, right? And if he got hit, someone else would take the flag and have the honor. Well, if it's just a colorful piece of cloth, why would a soldier risk his life right, carrying yeah. it into battle? Right. And uh, so, so we still have something of this that the, the physical object is more than the object because it makes present what we believe, uh, what we live for, what we're even willing to die for. So it goes, goes beyond just that piece of
2: cloth. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times did we hear growing up, you know, actions speak louder than words. Yeah. You know, but what you're saying reminds us that sacred actions, actions that are definitively sacred, are going to speak louder than just mere words, but the words of consecration accompanied by the sacred and transcendent gestures of our living tradition, you know, will make what seems almost fantastic. I mean, I remember back, even though it's been like 36 years since I became a Catholic, I still remembered like it was a month or two ago in the sense that, what do they believe?
0: Right.
2: The body, blood, soul, and divinity of the risen savior? It's like, do they realize how truly fantastic that is? And I mean, in the sense of fantasy. I mean, if that's real, then I have to rethink everything. Everything else, right. You know. But if that's not real, what they're doing is like a debased form of idolatry in the history of religions but, you know, when you read Chesterton and when you read Aquinas, you realize they are, they're not dummies, you know? <laughs> there is something profoundly real about this, even though it is extraordinarily elusive, apart from the gift of faith. Yes. And so, to have actions and words come together, you know, in the mundane order of the natural, but especially in the sacred sphere of this transcendent and divine mystery, Source and Summit can easily become something of a Catholic talking
3: point, you know. It has to be lived. it it, it seems to me that it's never enough just to mount a robust defense of the Eucharist, uh, you know, yet another treatise on the real presence. There has to be a a falling in love Mm. with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Here he is in the Eucharist, body, soul, and divinity, and my whole life depends on the truth of that object, that wafer. And you are right, a a sacramental imagination really does need to be nourished uh, and and revived. I I don't want to push you into a Byzantine corner, but they have the iconostasis, which I think sort of heightens the sense of the sheer otherness of God, who yet comes dramatically, intimately, into our very midst. But it reminds us that there is something terrifyingly sacred about this moment, uh, this object. Mm -hmm. And, and it connects us back to the temple worship, right? Because
1: that whole, the whole way the sanctuary is arranged. And we have a similar thing. Well, traditionally, when we had the altar rail, too, and marked off the the um, the sanctuary. And then, uh, actually, in the old mass, the priest would pray a prayer when he walked up the steps to the high altar uh, that God might purify our minds to enter into the Holy of Holies. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm the power of God's presence, right? In, in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Only the priest would enter that on Yom Kippur. So now God's presence there in the tabernacle. Okay. So uh, that iconostasis and arch traditional church architecture as well, harkens back to that, um, the temple yeah. ritual.
0: Yeah. Archbishop, do you think it's, where, where was the breakdown? If you were to take a look, was it largely moms and dads didn't believe they didn't understand, education, all the above, cultural? Where do you start? <laughs> Good question. Uh,
1: probably with priests. Okay. You know, it's people, what they experience on Sunday is it's what's going to form their, their faith and their thinking. And when uh, if priests are very casual in celebrating the Mass, mm-hmm. uh, people are not going to be instilled with the sense of reverence and the sacredness that the Eucharist is. Mm-hmm. I, I think it began there, now, unfortunately, that happened at a time when there was a decline in catechesis, mm. right? And, kind of like uh, a perfect storm almost. Yes, it was yeah. a perfect storm.
2: You know, building on what you were just saying a moment ago about the temple, I'm reminded of a friend uh, who got her doctorate at a Catholic university. She's a pro- Protestant, mm-hmm. and she was focusing on um, uh, the the, the, uh, the reform of Cluny and what was it that made the the Cluniac reform so profoundly transformative. And what she discovered was that they believed that Heaven came to Earth, that in the Holy Eucharist they had the Holy of Holies. And so she was a historian. She defended this in her dissertation, which unfortunately never got published. But when I read it, I called her. We talked for quite a while. And she described her defense. She said, you know, I was the sole Protestant. And these Catholic priest theologians were like, you know, temple worship, you know, we've kind of opted for the synagogue. And she was like pushing back, I think respectfully, but sharply, you know, the synagogue has a rabbi with a Torah scroll and a sermon. That's the Protestant form of our worship. She said, the temple has an altar and a priest and a sacrifice. That's the form of your worship, yeah, you know. Yeah. We you also have a homily, you know, but we don't have an altar or a priest or a sacrifice, you know. And uh, I was sharing this recently with a friend of mine who is a convert from Judaism. He's now an evangelical. He's looking at the Eucharist, mm-hmm. and he's beginning to realize that in the Hebrew Bible, the word synagogue doesn't occur, rabbi doesn't occur, you know, it always was temple. And if you just simply swap out temple for synagogue, altar for scroll, you know, uh, and then sacrifice becomes a sermon, mm-hmm. I, I think that inadvertently you've backed yourself into a really,
0: mm, yeah. a,
3: a cheap inversion, a watered. Well, you're left with nothing. Yeah. As if the Word became paper uh, and not flesh. Upon this book, I will build yeah. my <laughs> church.
1: <Right. Yeah. laughs> Yes, it was not enough for God to let His Word be written or even proclaimed by the prophets. The Word had to become flesh.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And there's a a great line in Gregory the Great where he uh, surmises that at the moment of consecration, all of the angels uh, fall prostrate Mm -hmm. uh, before that consecrated bread. Uh, They know that this is God. And that's the kind of reverence we need to uh, 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 recover.
1: Yes, Amen. yes, so it is, again, it's how, how we treat, how we treat the Eucharist, how we handle the Eucharist, uh, how, we, how we even behave in church, sure. you know, how we,
0: how we dress, how we show reverence and sacred silence, all of that. And we're just getting into our topic, so stay with us as Franciscan University Presents continues.
4: Receiving Holy Communion for me means just a moment of intimacy with Christ, um, just a very personal encounter and and um, coming in just very close physical union with, with Jesus. Um, and you really are receiving His heart whenever you're receiving the Eucharist.
3: I pray in front of the
0: Blessed Sacrament, just kind of bringing myself in front of there and lifting my heart up to God, just kind of reflecting on my week and offering up whatever is going on in my life at the time, and doing that just brings me a sense of peace and, and also like joy in doing that.
4: Walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs on a Franciscan University pilgrimage led by inspiring spiritual directors. You'll explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage in the Holy Land, Poland, France, Austria, Italy, and more destinations. On each pilgrimage, you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages.
0: Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're discussing the theme, Eucharistic Revival. Archbishop, we ended the last segment just uh, identifying the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of God. Uh, is anybody worthy to receive the Eucharist? How do we reconcile that? Yes, yeah, so well, certainly no one on their own is worthy to receive. That's why
1: every time we receive, we first recite those words of the Roman centurion, right? Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word. Uh, so it's the Lord who makes us worthy. and. You know, if you really love someone, someone who loves you so much it gives so much, and you know you never could be worthy of that person's love, but the person's so good to you, you want to be worthy of their love yeah, anyway. Well, yeah, yeah. so if we really love God, even though we can't on our own be worthy of His love, we want to be, and we want to try to be. And then God's grace operates within us to make us worthy to receive, which is quite different from someone who thinks, well, no one's worthy to receive. I can live in a way there that's not, not coherent with what it means to receive the Eucharist and receive anyway.
0: Right.
2: You know, theologians recognize the Eucharist is this uh, instrumental power, a cause, That doesn't just signify, but it affects what it signifies, but not just in the sense of transubstantiating bread and wine into Christ's real presence, but transforming sinners into saints. Mm -hmm. Uh, But theologians also speak of a, a form of causality that Aristotle didn't know of, and that is dispositive causality, that we have to dispose ourselves. We can't possibly make ourselves worthy, but we can be disposed to receiving that mercy, that grace, and in a state of grace, mm-hmm. but only in a state of grace, is it not only safe to receive, but it's profoundly sanctifying. But what Paul change. says in 1 Corinthians 11, I mean,
3: yeah. it's profoundly unsafe right. to receive that without that proper disposition. And I think, you know, in, in that pastoral letter you wrote, you touch upon this, I think, with with rare eloquence, really, that while it's okay to struggle to have difficulties, yet you mustn't foreclose uh, on, on God's law. You must continue to remain open to His grace and to ask uh, for maybe the grace to understand and submit. And that's wholly different from the guy who says, well, you know, I don't really accept it at all, but I continue uh, yes. to blaspheme uh, this event and, and uh, desecrate it by returning again and again uh, to the altar. There's definitely, uh, we play a part in it. That's always been the
1: Catholic understanding, right? It's participatory. We have a role to play. Christ does the work for us. We need, to, we need to dispose ourselves properly. I remember once a long, long time ago, my first year of college, I took a world's religion course. And we were studying Hinduism, even though it's, it's kind of a part of Hindu thinking. But I, that applies to us too, in a way, about the relationship of the soul to the divine. There were two theories about how it works. One is uh, a kitten. The mother picks up her, her young... By the, with her mouth by the back of the neck and carries young, And the other, the, the monkey. So the, the monkey um, has to hold on to his mother as she's swinging mm. from tree to tree. Mm-hmm. And I see that kind of more our Catholic understanding. That's we good. have a role to play clinging to Christ mm. who then will take us, you know, to, to heaven. Um, and I think the, uh, at least some Protestants anyway, would see it more, more passive. Christ does all the work, so it's more like the kitten mm-hmm. carrying uh, the mother carrying her her kitten uh, without any effort on right. his part. Yeah. So, but we do have a so we do have a role to play. You know, we do have to cooperate. We do have to be uh, disposed um, to God's working and, in it. Therefore, think- therefore, our emphasis on on good works, our emphasis sure. on works of penance not that they in themselves justify us, but it's part of the process of becoming just.
0: Right, I think it's that distinction is I am not worth, that continual process of looking into my own heart. And I think that does provide um, a a humility, more of an awe, if we really do understand how unworthy I am to receive this, and yet the Lord still invites us to that, there's something Profoundly beautiful that takes it's place. It's those that who are encounter. holy who understand how oh, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. the
3: language of Christ, I think, is pretty emphatic on this, uh, uh, utterly uncompromising. Without me, you can do nothing. Yeah. And literally, that means nothing sin, the absence of, of love, love's shadow. So without grace, we can do nothing at all. Even the grace to be open to grace as a kind of prevenient yes. gift that uh, mm-hmm. we need to ask for dispose me. Uh, let me be open to this truth. I don't see it yet, but I want to remain docile just yeah. in case you want to surprise me. You <laughs> know, the context of that remark is so telling. John 15,
2: 15 is the farewell discourse. So it has this Eucharistic setting. Mm-hmm. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you know, why? Because apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, uh, the branch cannot bear fruit if it is separated and. Paul likewise, let a man examine himself. And the term for examine himself is much more than looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is looking internally into your own heart and a self-judgment and an assessment. Again, not of my worthiness, mm-hmm. but am I disposed? Have I repented? Yeah. You know, And then you will, your word will heal me.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Archbishop, you're speaking of, in, in light of this, uh, a type of a Eucharistic revival and a renaissance. Maybe speak to that, and, and what's that going to look like in the Church? Yes, the bishops began thinking about it
1: uh, after the, you recall, the Pew survey back in 2019, of what it said up to, about 70% of Catholics now either don't believe or don't understand what the Church teaches about the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, so we were already beginning to think of uh, some kind of a Eucharistic revival Project, Uh, so we uh, a working group was formed and to bat ideas around and what we came up with was a um, a three-year process. It's modeled after the Encuentro that we've now recently had the fifth Encuentro, beginning with it will begin at a diocesan level Corpus Christi Sunday. So all the diocese going to ask be asked to have a Eucharistic Corpus Christi procession um, in their cathedrals uh, and to to launch it at the diocesan level, and then the dioceses are to organize other, other activities uh, around and, and catechesis around, around the Eucharist. Then the second year, their emphasis will be in the parishes, and then it will culminate in the third year with the National Eucharistic Congress mm-hmm. in, in July uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Indianapolis. And they're also forming um, Eucharistic preachers, so priests and deacons, or receiving some preparation to then be made available all over the country. A diocese wants to have its own Eucharistic Congress or a parish wants to have a parish mission centered around that theme. These Eucharistic preachers will be available. And then also as kind of the, the ongoing uh, uh, process to form uh, Eucharistic missionaries who so can continue the work of forming people with the proper understanding of the Eucharist. I
0: have a strange question. How, how will we determine success? <laughs> I mean, that's a, isn't that a hard question? But I was thinking about that. What What is what is that going to look like?
1: Well, if you want to quantify it, I suppose, when these surveys are done, that we'd see more and more Catholics <laughs> do have the right understanding and belief. Yeah. Flip 70, 30 around. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because this Pew survey was along the lines of previous surveys that have been done, right? This wasn't the first time. So there's something
0: that stirred in at this time though. And I just, what is that gonna, I, I don't know that there's an easy answer. What's that gonna look like other than just numbers? I see a vibrant church. I see longer lines to confession. I see more baptisms. I mean, I think that there'll be a ripple impact.
1: Yeah, we'll world see world more, more uh, reverent and beautiful worship. We'll see more people taking the faith seriously under, and, and living it out in their, their daily lives, in their private as well as their public lives. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean,
3: what, what's pretty clear, I think, is if we don't succeed, then the, the jig is up. We might <laughs> as well hand in our chips because the game is over. We've lost. This is the centerpiece. If we can't get most Catholics to accept this and to love what they know, then we've lost. We've nothing to commend. You know, in the last couple of years of John Paul's
2: pontificate, everybody just saw the man weakened by Parkinson's in the wheelchair or, you know, uh, stationary. And then he surprised everybody by publishing one more encyclical, the Church of the Eucharist and you know not surprisingly he called for eucharistic faith to be renewed mm-hmm. but then he also called for eucharistic devotion to be renewed and intensified but i think the biggest surprise for me at least was that he was calling for the need to cultivate eucharistic amazement yes and eucharistic yes. amazement just rang deep within my heart because i remember you know the first time i attended a mass as a protestant in the back pew and i'm like if that's not bread, Lord, that is you. That's you. And, like, and that sense of amazement. I mean, it isn't like you can sustain those warm feelings, you know. But on the other hand, you don't have to conjure them up on your own. Yeah. You just have to recognize that the objective reality is beyond amazing. It's amazing
0: how unamazed we are.
3: Yeah, but it, it becomes
0: the impetus to something else. That right. that I, I can, I, it was just as you are saying, I was imagining looking out at a beautiful sunset. There's something in that that amazes you that wants you to see it again and wants you to experience it right. again, and, and I think that's the same thing that with Eucharist, that when we, when we experience that, it stirs something in us that asks more questions, and there's something else here that I'm missing, and isn't that the goal of this, is,
3: is to try to stir something. I, I think for uh, lay people, the guy in the pew, what is most convicting is when you watch the priest mm-hmm. uh, say Mass, celebrate the mm-hmm. Eucharist. Yes. He's lost in a kind of contemplative swoon uh, before the mystery, this Eucharistic amazement, this astonishment, this wonderment mm-hmm. in the face of God made flesh,
1: and and everything else that goes with that. You know, the
3: music, the way yeah, the yeah. ministers
1: in the sanctuary uh, serve the Mass and and conduct themselves. Uh, all of that uh, is, that engenders Eucharistic amazement. I've, I've noticed this in Absolutely. Masses, the special Masses I celebrated where we focused really hard on that with really beautiful music and, and making sure everything was done well to the point of excellence. Uh, the Eucharistic amazement is really stirred within the people in the people.
0: I, I think we had a liturgy, it was a Monday noon liturgy a couple of weeks ago. And we had quite a few students that were visiting and a mother, it was a mother and a daughter from Tennessee. Greeted her after mass, and the mother was weeping, and she said, "Is it always like this? <laughs> you know, she just had not experienced just a, a, alive and a reverence and an amazing."
1: I, I had it the, was beautiful. I had the same experience a few years ago when we have a a, a, a week during the summer for high school age boys mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. be thinking about the priesthood, so we have it at the seminary. And the concluding mass, the parents were there. We had a schola sing some uh, some special chants and and polyphony, some composed by a. Uh, uh, contemporary composer um, who works for our Benedict XVI Mm. Institute, Frank Laraca, and, uh, but it's all sacred music, and the parents were moved to tears. Mm. And many of them, they're of the age where they did not grow up with this. So they hadn't been exposed to it. It was new to them, and they were reduced to tears because it was so beautiful.
2: You know, I I know a friend who uh, is a convert from Mormonism, and he explains that when people discover Mormon theology, they wonder, how can anybody believe that? And he said, well, growing up in Salt Lake City, you're surrounded by what he called plausibility structures. (laughs) Big families, (laughs) neighborhoods, temples, you know. And he said, when I stepped into a Catholic church and I watched mass, I realize there's something much more plausible.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And the Eucharistic liturgy is itself a kind of supernatural plausibility yes. structure
3: that is more compelling than any theologian's argument. And I mean, St. Paul really touches upon this in a profound way in the first letter to the Corinthians. He, I mean, he draws a connection between Ecclesia and Eucharist. The one produces the other, a mutual uh, dependence. Uh, they're interlocked, these two mysteries. So when you watch a priest uh, celebrate the Eucharist in a way that makes it look absolutely convict, you know, convicting, you're moved. You, you may leave the church wondering, does any, does any of this make sense? But this is an impossible thing uh, that has yet happened. And, and I, I must, I'm moved uh, to bow down and worship.
0: Yeah. and you know, I, I would say as a priest, it's, it's equal, there's this relationship that develops. And I'm sure you'd say the same. Is that when you've got a congregation that's also worshiping, there's, there's just a grace and a communion. A in, in, Yes, it's just, yeah, yeah but it's just, it's, it's a community that comes together. They know why they're there. They know who they're worshiping, yeah. not what, and it's just, it's such a great blessing. So we'll be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Please stay with us.
5: My confirmation saint is Blessed Imelda. Um, it took me a while to figure out who I wanted as my confirmation saint, but I eventually settled on her as she is a patron saint of First Communicants. Um, her story in brief is that she, when she received her First Communion, her heart burst in joy and she died. So when I receive the Eucharist, remembering the true presence of Christ, I try to ask for intercession so that I can receive the same joy, the same passion, the same zeal that she had when I received the Eucharist. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word. It's a discovery.
0: Welcome back, and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record here in the CommArts studio at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating all the cameras and the equipment, and our theology professors, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, and I are discussing the topic, Eucharistic Revival with the Archbishop. Archbishop, there are... um, places of revival, there are really moment, uh, places of grace that are taking place in the country. You're seeing that, aren't you? Oh yes, I think we
1: are. Picking up on Dr. Martin's uh, comment about if we don't get this right, the jig is up. I think in a sense, yes, but we also need to look around. Where is the church young and vibrant and growing? Uh, it's where... Catholicism is enthusiastically embraced. Uh, George Weigel points this out a lot, right? It's not what, where uh, it, what it's lived is what he likes to call Catholicism light or uh-huh. Bishop Barron calls beige Catholicism, yeah, right? Yeah. It's where the whole package is, is enthusiastically and joyfully embraced. Uh, we see these points of revival. I mean, Franciscan University of Steubenville is a prime example Perfect. that everyone looks to. Perfect. The other other Catholic colleges that where we see this Renaissance and some parishes and other other communities and movements. So where where Catholicism is joyfully totally embraced, we see this. The way I like to put it is that uh, what is Catholic, classically Catholic works.
0: Yeah, yes.
1: Uh, that evangelizes and moves people to embrace the whole truth
0: that that Christ is entrusted. We had the somebody visiting one time in one of my favorite places. I think we'd agree is, is the Eucharistic Chapel of the Portiuncula, where we have adoration twenty-four hours a day with our students, faculty, and staff. Somebody said, "I didn't realize we still did that in the church, <laughs> right?" And yes, we do <laughs> yeah, that. Yes, we do that. It's really at the heart of this. So um, one of the things, maybe the more difficult topics, is one of how do we deal with, or how do you, because you have to deal with it more. Um, individuals who are in the public they're in the limelight they profess to be Catholic but their lives don't seem to express that and they hold profoundly contrary positions to mm-hmm. the church mm-hmm. and how do you navigate that as, a, as an archbishop in, in the question of Eucharist and their ability to receive yes this is a problem that has been vexing us
1: for a, a very long time uh, and uh, The then Cardinal Ratzinger, when he's the Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, issued a letter to the bishops. Um, This was during the time when uh, John Kerry was a presidential candidate, although uh, it was withheld. We didn't actually see the letter until a couple of years later. But he laid out what is perfectly reasonable and sensible, that, you know, the bishop or the person's pastor has to have conversations, help them understand, try to move them to the path of conversion and so forth, and has to has to do everything possible to help them understand. And um, if that, he, he comes to the point where it's clear this is not going to work, then then he should declare that the person is not to be admitted to Holy Communion. That's the Canon 9.15. The first is Canon, 9, Canon 9.16 is really a starting point where the person on their own conscience is not to receive if they're in a, uh, state of, of grave sin, but if they're in a obstinate, persistent, uh, manifest grave sin, uh, then the next step would be to declare that they're not to be admitted to communion. So Cardinal Ratzinger laid out those principles for us uh, way back and way back then, and yeah. we did issue a, a document on that in 2006. Um, um, Happy those who are called to a supper, and uh, we issued a an updated one uh, last year, this Eucharistic Coherence document. Uh, so again, with, these are valuable teaching documents, but right. words alone don't work. We right. need actions and symbols.
2: Right. Those canons though are out there and they're objective and they need to be observed and enforced, but just as I'm not reducible to my skeleton, so the faith is not reducible to the canon law. The canon law supports the church like a skeleton enables us to stand upright. Uh, And if the skeleton is fractured, if the canon law is not observed, there really is a collapse. Uh, And I think that's what people can observe in various places. But coming back to that point, where there's a vitality, where there is uh, coherence but even more devotion and amazement, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think the best defense is a good offense, and I think that's what this document on Eucharistic coherence is all about, that if we're going to live lives as Catholics that's coherent, you know, the Eucharist is going to be at the center. I,
3: you know, I think we need some plain speaking. Uh, you'd I'm have sure to be we'll get
0: that. Go. <laughs> almost,
3: you'd have to be almost imbecilic, I think, not to know when life begins. Even if you slept through every high school biology class, uh, you would know. The knowledge would somehow intrude. Life begins uh, at conception. So how do you account for either indifference to that fact or hostility to those who want to enshrine it as a constitutional principle? You can't say, well, they're invincibly ignorant because that's not gonna wash. I think the the reason is obduracy, a certain hardness of heart. Mm -hmm. In the scriptures, I think there are over 40 references to that. Uh, in, in, I think, Mark's Gospel, when Jesus is about to cure the man with the withered hand, the Pharisees, they, they mobilize mm-hmm. uh, to put an end to this because it's the Sabbath. You can't even perform a single gesture of charity on the Sabbath, and Jesus feels grief and anger for their hardness of heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm baffled at how they claim to follow science, and
1: like you said, it's it's a scientific fact. like begins at conception, but still we hear this spin that it's a matter of religious belief. Right? How can it be a matter of religious belief? Because if that's the case, one person's religious belief has to be imposed on everyone, because at a certain point, the government has to draw a line and say, beyond this point, you can't kill the person. So if it's birth, is that a religious belief that life begins at birth? No, it's about science. Uh, So we, first of all, have to clarify that this is based on science, it's not a matter of religious right. belief, but a lot of people are still confused about that. I don't know why there's this, this um, obduracy. Um, I don't know if people are blinded by political power, uh, a will, just a will not to believe it, w- what is so obvious, but, but again, following the Cardinal Ratzinger's um, uh, advice to us, these conversations have to, have to happen. It's very thorny, it's very tricky, uh, there's, it has to be done at the right time and in the right way when a bishop makes a prudential judgment. Uh, it has happened, and I, I yeah. think it will it will happen again, but the bishop has to decide when they've come to the end of the line, nothing more can right. be done. Yeah.
0: Bishop, I think to, when the Roe v. Wade decision was released and leaked, there was a, a one-minute video online on Instagram that was really good. It was an atheist. And he said, atheist for life. And he was, and he said it was really, it was actually really powerful. He said, I don't believe that life begins at conception. And he said, I'm not a believer. He said, I recognize it. It's simply a scientific fact, and that child deserves to be protected. And it was just such a poignant, yeah. articulate uh, explanation of what was taking place. And it's just, I think the scripture that comes to my mind is, "What's going on? The people prefer darkness." I mean, I don't know, I don't know any other ways that is that there's a choice and a decision that they're making they're choosing ultimately, choosing darkness. That well, we, they
1: live in a certain world where um, the, th- the power, everything's about power. And yeah, I think yeah. that's that does to some degree blind people. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And, and that term, people prefer darkness, is from John 3, yeah. where God so loved the world, agapa'o, agape.
0: Not come to condemn it.
2: And then, but men prefer yeah. the darkness. The word for prefer, agapa'o. Yeah. Yeah. They love the darkness because the light would then illuminate their evil deeds. And again, we can't judge hearts, but we can judge actions. And, you know, I think of 1 Corinthians 5 where St. Paul orders the excommunication of this man who's practicing incest, which even pagans outside the congregation see is so unnatural. And he doesn't do it because he holds that man in contempt. If he held that man in contempt, he'd say, keep receiving. Right. Yeah. You know, he loves that man, and he expressly states, so that on the day of the Lord Jesus, his soul may be saved.
0: Right. Right, and that's the, the argument is, is Jesus is loving. Well, of course he is, but Jesus also said some things that were difficult and that yes, demanded yes. a response, yeah. and, and I think that's always a cop-out.
1: The soft Jesus, yeah, right. Right, like right. an excuse we use to do what we want to do and think right. that it's okay. I mean, you,
3: you think of the pastor, uh, one of whose parishioners is a mobster who runs Murder Incorporated, and he goes up to him and says, look, you've got to stop killing people, and until you do, you can't receive Holy Communion. Or like Lady Astor, who went up to Stalin at a cocktail party and said, Mr. Stalin, when are you going to stop killing people? Now, she wasn't in any position to sanction him, but bishops are. And I I think uh, there needs to be a little more vigorous maneuvering to try to uh, isolate, anathematize these people, because otherwise the word gets out that we're we're not really all that fond of unborn babies. They don't have the preferential treatment for the poor.
1: I sense a growing conviction among bishops of that. And uh, to to rebut the argument that, well, this is one issue, there are so many other issues, that's true. There are many other really important issues, but none of these other issues involves the direct killing of innocent human life. Mm -hmm. So immigration's been a top-party issue for us for a very long time. We're very frustrated we can't get just a comprehensive immigration policy with the panic of the crisis at the southern border. But as bad as that is, I don't see any politician trying to authorize border patrol agents to shoot at people right. crossing, the, crossing border, the border illegal. Right, right. right. The that's Bishops taking...
3: are already on record as recognizing uh, abortion as the preeminent yes. issue. Yes. I mean, it's foundational. And that is why. If that you don't have it's a life, like taking of life, how can you life? exercise any other right? Yes.
0: Archbishop, I think the, the struggle I think that some of the people have in the pew is the, and this may be really hard, I'm not sure how you could speak to it, but the difference of, of one bishop doing one thing and one bishop yes. doing another thing. And maybe just speak to that. How how can the individual, how do they reconcile that? How do they work through that, seeing different bishops taking different well, steps? Well,
1: bishop, each bishop has to follow his own conscience and make his own prudential judgment in the area. And some bishops, uh, there's room for coming to different judgments in, in different circumstances. What concerns me more than that is that because people don't understand the Eucharist, that taking that action would be very confusing to people. If they think Holy Communion is only a gesture of welcome and belonging to the community, then it doesn't make sense that anyone should have to refrain
3: yeah. from, right. from, from let that's, alone
1: that's a really... bishop taking an action to declare some that someone should not, it doesn't make any sense. So probably to the majority of this, these surveys are true, 70% don't believe or don't know it's not gonna make much sense to them. So that's another issue that we have to address it. So that's why the two go hand in hand, the Eucharistic clearance and Eucharistic revival. That was just
0: interesting though, so, the idea of being welcome, because a lot of people do see that. It's the Eucharist is, oh, you're welcome. So everybody's welcome. I mean, Scripture, everybody is welcome, but that doesn't mean that there is still not something that's being asked as we go to the first section. something that's being asked of us as we are welcome to the table. And
3: at the very least, I, I think, uh, it would provoke a certain salutary curiosity. People would ask, <laughs> Why is the church so exercised about this? Mm -hmm. Why is she prepared to go to the wall in defense of this baby? And I I think that can be very persuasive. You know, I remember back in my
2: evangelical days discovering that, you know, the Catholics had this closed communion and Mm -hmm. at least on paper, a strict standard. And, you know, I was coming out of young life, you know, a parachurch, it wasn't even a denomination. And the Lord's Supper, we didn't even call it the Eucharist, was like a handshake. You know, well, you're not going to withhold that from anybody. You know, then I become a Presbyterian. I realize, okay, it's more like a hug, you know. (laughs) Then an Anglo-Catholic, you know, Anglican, you know, it's like a kiss. And then Marriage Supper of the Lamb. No wonder in the ancient patristic sources you see the analogy is this marital embrace of fruitful love.
1: the consummation of the marriage covenant. So it's not just an invitation to the dinner table. It's consummating a marriage. You have to be worthy uh, to the most intimate act possible. That's the intimacy God seeks with us.
2: The breakthrough was for me that, you know, for us, the Eucharist is a supper. But if that's all it is, then Calvary is just an execution. (laughs) Only if the Eucharist is where the sacrifice of the new covenant by the Passover lamb, who's the high priest, That's where it's initiated. Then suddenly the execution is where it's consummated. And that's what Eucharistic coherence is. That's what Eucharistic revival does. It's gonna get the gospel right, because it isn't just pain and suffering that saves us. It's the love that transforms that pain
3: into saving passion. Well, I mean, if this is a a consummation that you would not only wish to witness, but to be somehow drawn into, participate in this drama, then why would it be much of a sacrifice to give up your sins? <laughs> We're weak.
1: You know, and and the, proud. More, the more
3: you're in the well, habit least, of saying the harder it is. least acknowledge to give it up. that I'm a sinner uh, and I want to try to do better. Yeah.
0: Which brings us back to where we started at the beginning um, Lord, I'm not worthy. Lord, I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. up next, our panelists and our guest will share their final thoughts on our need for Eucharistic revival. Please stay with us.
4: Ever since I was young, I really had this draw to the Eucharist, especially to the idea that we get to receive Jesus. I mean, it's
0: such a humbling moment to see the King of Kings, the person that died on the cross for us, come down to earth and then willingly let us receive Him to receive grace. And for myself, just kind of recognizing the peace that comes when being in His presence is kind of what allowed me to understand that He's truly there.
5: There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online.
0: Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment, so Regis, if you would.
3: Yeah, just a a couple of points. Uh, Thank you uh, for coming. I mean, this has been a great honor to have you and to get to know you. Uh, But I must say, you have the most challenging assignment. Mm -hmm. in the cosmos, <laughs> I mean, it's not just uh, the cost of living in San Francisco that you have to cope with, but uh, people like some of your parishioners, uh, and uh, I, I wish you well. But you you discharge it, I, I think, with great uh, courage uh, and conviction, and not a little uh, humor, uh, which which may be uh, pretty necessary. Uh, uh, one or two observations uh, about the Eucharist. Uh, Augustine has a wonderful line. He says, "When I." when I start talking about the church, I can't shut up." He goes on and on and on, because he sees in the church the face of Christ. And and Paul, those two, interlocking mysteries of Church and Eucharist, uh, not one without the other because each confects the other. Uh, And and de Lubac, in his great book, uh, The Splendor of Catholicism, remarks early on on the recurrent thrill it must give everyone to see the face of Christ upon the countenance of of the Church, and especially in the most dramatic, intimate way, uh, in that tiny wafer, which is himself uh, God. And it seems to me that we can never come to an end of that mystery. I mean, that's, that's bedrock. Uh, and in the experience of a great love, everything becomes an event related to that love. The Eucharist radiates out to the very ends of the earth. But we seldom say anything about the Eucharist. We're strangely silent about this centerpiece of our faith. And finally, it's really too important to be left to the theologians to speak about the eucharist or even bishops and priests and nuns everybody needs to speak about the eucharist uh, and i hope that this renaissance of eucharistic uh, wonderment and coherence will really take hold uh, and change the face of the church in this country
0: yeah. thank you Regis. scott
2: i commend you for Eucharistic revival, that idea. You know, I, I'm thinking back a couple of weeks when Kimberly and I were sitting there listening to our son, recently ordained, Father Jeremiah, practicing this homily on us <laughs> that was essentially Eucharistic revival. And you could sense his own quiet passion, and he delivered that three times to great effect at the Basilica, thanks be to God. But revival strikes me as a former Protestant as being a kind of Protestant term, revivalism. But wait a minute, you know, if you can have Eucharistic revival, it it strikes the same chord that George Weigel does in his book Evangelical Catholicism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, is that an oxymoron? You're either an evangelic or you're a Catholic. And no, of course. When I became a Catholic, I wasn't less, but far more evangelical. The good news just got better, you know. And so to do this in a way that shows the inexhaustible radiance of the Eucharist is indispensable but to also permit people to express themselves in terms of the intellect, but also the will. Thoughts and emotions. You know, it's like Monsignor Knox, after decades of research, finishes enthusiasm. And he says, nothing was ever accomplished by enthusiasm. But he said, nothing was ever accomplished without it. (laughs) Nothing worthwhile. And I think right now, we don't wanna just pump up emotion, but we don't wanna suppress it either because that kind of revival is a human need, and it's just a logical response to what mysteries we celebrate.
0: Absolutely, beautiful, beautiful. Archbishop, a blessing to have you with us. Your final thoughts. Well, revival
2: means
1: bringing back to life, right? And uh, I don't know what could be more at the heart of what it means to be a Catholic than our, our Eucharistic faith. So, I, yes, uh, I'm hoping that it will be a very energizing process culminating in this National Eucharistic Congress. But what's most important is the takeaway, mm-hmm. right? So this forming of Eucharistic missionaries, uh, hopefully starting a movement of a greater desire and intensity and that enthusiasm to catechize people, to reclaim beautiful and reverent worship. That's what's going to, to move people's souls to, to embrace the fullness of the truth. So we have to be very intentional about this in every sector of the church. You know, in our faith formation programs, in our Catholic school, elementary, high schools, and and universities, uh, in in every in our seminaries, especially, it all starts at the seminary, right? Mm. That we we can uh, embrace this uh, Eucharistic amazement, and as it's and it convey it in, in our worship, in our in our catechesis. Um, so we can begin a, a movement of reclaiming our Eucharistic faith. And uh, then uh, the difficulties we're facing now will, I think, fall into a much clearer light about the whole idea of proper disposition to receiving the Holy Eucharist. If we're really amazed at it, uh, again, we can't be worthy on our own, but we wanna try anyway, right? <laughs> right so we'll, right. we'll more frequently avail ourselves of the sacrament of penance. We'll want to go to confession. if. Uh, I would imagine in in marriage, right? You want to do everything possible to please your spouse and to be worthy of your spouse, despite the the rough times and all that, but you want to do everything possible to please the other. That's how we should be with our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, then when we do that, that's the dispositive part, right? His grace will then make us worthy to receive him. And we grow more deeply in union with him. And when that happens, we discover the happiness that He wants us to have with Him.
0: Amen. amen. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic, we have a free handout for you, an excerpt from Archbishop's letter, Before I Formed You in the Womb, I Knew You. Uh, It is yours for free simply by going to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen momentarily. Regis, you stated that we don't, maybe don't write a lot on the Eucharist. I was reflecting on St. Francis, and I think the Eucharist is actually what he wrote on more than anything yes. else. And, yes. and being the Archbishop of San Francisco, I would be remiss if I didn't say something yeah. about that. But, but for Francis, he couldn't imagine that there are three significant events, that God would take on flesh, that God would humble himself. I like what Father Cuttle says, that Francis gives us this insight of God being humble and it's something that we don't reflect on much. Mm-hmm. But the next was, was that that same God who would humble himself would take on flesh and then would allow himself to be crucified it was just remarkable. And then the final, the the culmination is that same God would show himself to us yes. in what appears to be oh, bread. It, it's letters to priests. Yes, absolutely. absolutely.
1: Dirty linens and sloppy celebrations. Absolutely. Of and he uh, was, he was I don't want to say fanatic because that's in there, but he was enthusiastic (laughs) about reverence, cleanliness, beauty, uh, everything the best for God. People, I think, have this false notion that he was poor, he was a beggar, and that somehow that that kind of material poverty transfers over to the mass. But no, quite the opposite, only the best for God. No,
0: and 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 my experience, I guess, as a kid, as I was praying about being a priest, and remember kneeling down in front of the, mass one day in front of the Eucharist and just wanting to have this special relationship. I don't know there was, again, it was a kid, but that I knew that there was a special relationship between the priest and what was in front of me in Jesus. And I think Saint. Francis invites us to, to discover that, that God is alive. I love the image that he would have the, the crib underneath the altar, but no, no child Jesus there because every time we celebrated Mass Jesus was going to be present in that. So I think uh, my, my nickname, the, the Saint Francis provides us, an opportunity to come to a, a deeper love and a deeper amazement at the presence of God. He says, you know, what, what appears to be bread, Christ is present, it was my, my prayer card for, for my ordination. And, and I'm just grateful for that, that he provides us this simple, humble, not a great theologian provides us a focus and a, and a love of the Eucharist. And and given that that's your city, we continue to ask yes. that you to pray for that. So if you would close us with a final prayer of blessing. Yes.
1: May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and grant you his peace, the Father,
4: and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much. Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com, where you can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request the handout by emailing us at presents franciscan.edu. Or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800-783-6447.